0: Welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Kieran Paul, your host, and today we are talking to Ken Birch, the Executive Director of the Council of Institutional Investors, or CII. Welcome to the show, Ken. Uh, Thank you very much, Karen. Glad to be on. Uh, So let's start firstly with how we got where we are today. Uh, You've criticized the Business Roundtable statement on corporate purpose, which relegated shareholder primacy to one among many objectives, and you called two recent rule proposals the most significant Securities and Exchange Commission attempt to limit shareholder rights since the commission was created, although clearly they are popular in some quarters. So why do you think the priorities of issuers and investors are so far apart?
1: Well, you know, we all tend to focus our attention on differences of interests and views always, and I would not want to overstate them. Clearly, there always have been uh, and, and really always will be some tension when we are discussing questions of relative power between different groups uh, and accountability of management and boards. But frankly, there are larger areas of general shared views, including on building long-term value. That DRT statement you reference is actually a case in point We at the Council of Institutional Investors were pretty sensitive to the Business Roundtable removing from its longstanding policy some language that management should be accountable to the owners of the company, the shareholders, and just taking the language of their statement literally, and also the words that BRT uh, leaders used when they announced their uh, new commitment to stakeholders. They said they felt obligations to various stakeholders, including workers, communities, and customers, but that pretty clearly from the language they used, the boards and management were to be the arbiters between different groups in in balancing interests. The Business Roundtable suggested no mechanisms to hold a board accountable to non-shareholder stakeholders. And we knew they were actively working to reduce accountability to shareholders uh, by, for example, limits on shareholder proposals. So that's really where our point of sensitivity was. But about a week after the Business Roundtable put out that statement, uh, BRT leaders published a longer commentary uh, on uh, medium.com indicating that they did not really mean by the statement in and of itself to suggest that they should not be accountable to shareholders for creation of long-term shareholder value. They just wanted to articulate what they perceived as a set of obligations to other key stakeholders that are necessary to produce long-term value. And actually what they said in medium.com is pretty close to exactly what CII believes. To produce long-term shareholder value, you must treat a variety of stakeholders, particularly employees, with respect and be sensitive to the interests and views of workers, of communities, of suppliers, of customers, and so on. You are, as a company, you're operating within a web of obligations. So in long-term societal risks, to which industry contributes, most notably climate change, are among things that are of great risk to value longer term. So all that said, the disagreements over accountability of management boards to shareholders are significant. And this has come to a head recently with the fight on the part of the business round table and other lobbyists for uh, management interests to limit shareholder proposals and to change fundamental aspects of proxy voting so that institutional investors will be more supportive of management views than they are now. And actually, institutional investors are pretty supportive of management views presently, and on, on executive compensation votes average well above 90% support. Uh, very few incumbent directors receive less than majority support each year, and less than 2% of items are from shareholders. Most of them are 98% of items, more than 98% are from management. So the so question is, why have these matters come to a head now as opposed to 10 or 15 years ago? Well, proxy advisors actually have less influence on voting out- outcomes now than they did 10 or 15 years ago because major asset managers have built up in-house teams uh, and there's much more engagement between shareholders and management boards. But CEOs hate the on pay votes that became mandatory in the United States after 2010. And secondly, over the longer term, if you're talking 10 or 15 years, voting support for shareholder proposals has increased So the pressure from those proposals has increased. So managements and boards have watched as shareholder proposals for various shareholder rights with regard to certain board practices, with regard to better disclosure and policies on environmental impacts, board diversity, as all those issues have won increasing voting support, including often majority votes, the whole shareholder proposal arena has become more troublesome to management. So I think they would like to strangle new issues that may arise in the future in the crib rather than uh, continue to face a series of challenges
0: that get developed through shareholder proposals. And then the SEC proposal that has garnered the most attention, though, is the one on proxy voting advisors. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the proposed rule would do in its current form?
1: Sure, yeah. As proposed by the SEC, and and hopefully they'll at least moderate the proposal, but as proposed, it would codify guidance that the Securities and Exchange Commission gave in um, August 2019, or really an interpretation that the articulated in August that proxy advice as such and as we see provided by Isis and Glass-Lewis is solicitation under US securities laws. So there's a lot of baggage that goes with something being defined as solicitation of shareholders under securities laws. It means proxy advisors have a particular legal liability and that in practice, they must avail themselves of certain exemptions uh, from the solicitation rules in order to do business at all. So that became the becomes the hook, really, or became the hook for the SEC to impose highly prescriptive new regulatory requirements. All that is important in its own right. And we don't think what proxy advisors do is solicitation under under the securities laws. That whole issue probably will have to be decided in court. But in any case, one, once they had the hook, these new regulatory requirements include new fairly standardized conflict of interest disclosures, the SEC's trying to be fairly prescriptive here. Not clear that it's really necessary, but we also generally support good disclosure uh, on conflicts of interest. So we're not as troubled by that piece of it, other than it's a little bit bureaucratic were the way they're trying to do it. But the SEC also would require that proxy advisor reports, analysis, and voting recommendations be provided to management of companies that are subject to the reports for review and feedback at least three business days And then proxy advisors under some pressure to take account of those corrections and opinions and comments from, from company management and provide back a final report to management at least two days before the proxy advisor could provide it to the paying clients. So that adds at least a week and clearly more than a week to the process of publishing proxy advisor reports. Uh, finally, the SEC would require that proxy advisors provide an avenue for management rebuttal of the report with a hyperlink or some equivalent to a management statement rebutting the report. This is actually a very odd requirement and the two days is so that management has time to form a rebuttal if necessary before any investors who pays for the research sees the research. So we've I think this is all highly objectionable, including on free speech grounds. It's striking that the FCC did not even consider issues around the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment, which protects free speech, uh, which you'd think they would have to grapple with on this. More generally, the preparation and analysis done by the SEC on the whole proposal was was slipshod. The SEC did not even talk with some of the firms they name as proxy advisors and don't seem to understand the business models. The SEC's economic cost-benefit analysis really is the worst I've ever seen. My favorite example, the SEC assumes for purposes of estimating cost of this that only one-third of companies will face a proxy advisor report in any given year. Uh, this displays lack of understanding of one of the two things or of both of them, one, that when state law requires annual meetings, that means every year, annual means every year, (laughs) or the SEC maybe didn't understand that proxy advisors essentially cover all meetings. That's what investors expect. So it's just appallingly bad. Another favorite uh, anecdote from Glass-Lewis, Glass-Lewis calculated that the SEC is figuring that Glass-Lewis will spend an average of three minutes more per report with all this exchange of drafts back and forth with with issuers, and and the three minutes seems kind of ludicrous. That's for cost purposes. So they're trying to do major change, but then for cost purposes, they they minimize the cost. We also were concerned because the SEC founded the whole new regulatory scheme On an entirely unsubstantiated notion that there are pervasive errors in proxy advisor reports. It's certainly true that company executives and board members love to bash uh, ISS in particular when they're at cocktail parties, but cocktail party banter is not really a sufficient basis to establish a costly new regulatory structure. Uh,
0: So why do you think that these changes would, as in quote, lead to more errors and lower quality proxy advice, if you haven't already just answered that?
1: As I indicated, judging from the evidence produced uh, by company management in the SEC comment processes since September 2018, when they announced a proxy roundtable on all these issues. The rate of proxy advisor errors is actually very low. To the extent there is documentation of errors in the SEC release, it is incorporated into a table about which we're highly skeptical. We asked the SEC to show its work for that table. It's declined to do so, but it's very clear that most of the complaints that the SEC is referring to are about methodologies and not errors, and that some of the company claims of proxy advisor errors are simply incorrect. So we think the SEC is implicitly arguing for a perfection standard that if the reports are not now perfect, government regulation is warranted. So that's dubious right off the bat uh, because there are always going to be some errors. So aside from that, because the SEC is going to add so much to the time compression pressure, we think that's likely to lead more errors and or to less time for investors to see the errors, any errors that may exist, the SEC is adding more than a week to the process. They have a, an incentive, what they call an incentive for companies to publish their proxy statements earlier, but they didn't really do their research to understand what companies are doing now. One group of executives, the center of executive, on executive compensation have surveyed their members and their members said, none of them, zero are actually going to change their timing for producing proxy statements if this all goes through an effect. So they're creating an incentive that is clearly not going to work. And so the time compression is is, is going to be severe. ISS says it delivers reports now just under 20 days before uh, shareholder meetings. The SEC regulation on its its face imposes a week delay, and it's going to be more than a week of delay. ISS estimates 9 to 13 days. So when you subtract from 20, 9 to 13, you're left with much less time. Bailey Gifford uh, in one of the uh, very large number of good comment letters at the SEC said that the combination of the legal liability and likely pressure, uh, time pressure and other factors is going to make the reports too bland to be of use. So I think there'll likely be more errors and also just less utility in the reports. They're likely to be less less incisive. Secondly, and this is really important, this regulation is very heavy handed and it will create barriers to new entrants and likely will lead to at least one and probably more than one of the five firms that the SEC names as proxy advisors in the US market and actually some other firms with the, which do this work that the SEC apparently is unaware of to go out of business. So competition gives investors leverage to insist on quality. One corporate representative told me that he thinks what the US Chamber of Commerce, which is probably the most important lobbying force on this, is hoping to achieve is to drive all the proxy advisors out of business. But this individual who's on their side, basically, in concerns about proxy advisor, thinks that it's going to miss and the more likely outcome is a monopoly provider. So that would be very expensive for investors, uh, but also very likely to lead to lower quality reports.
0: And you've also opposed changing the resubmission thresholds for shareholder proposals, making it harder for investors to submit the same proposals unless support increases significantly on each attempt. So what do you think the value of small shareholders being able to file proposals and how would that be harmed by this rule?
1: Well first let me say I I think the SEC failed to demonstrate why resubmitting proposals should be more restricted than it is now. And it's actually not just resubmitting proposals, it's resubmitting a proposal on a topic. It's not the identical proposal, but a proposal on the same topic has got a low vote earlier. There is no real problem now, there aren't all that many proposals, so it's not clear why anything needs to change on it. Secondly, I really should point out there there are problems with proxy plumbing. I know you want to talk about that a little bit later, but we know the vote counts are not all that accurate. And if you raise the resubmission thresholds, it means any problem with miscounting is magnified. The SEC also disregarded concerns on dual class stock. So some companies where the insiders have special voting rights, uh, 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 per share, that makes the existing thresholds already quite high and the new ones impossible at some companies for resubmitting some proposals that actually are supported by uh, uh, holders of majority of shares. So that's all on the side of your question. The, the truth is the smaller shareholders have been the main proponents over the years on many issues. They have led to many important changes, which I can start rattling off a few of them. Annual election of directors rather than staggered election of directors, majority vote standards in election of directors, independent leadership on boards, independent boards and committees, appropriate accounting for stock options, board diversity, fair employment policies, including with regard to gender pay equity, and for fair treatment of LGBTQ employees, environmental disclosure, including reporting on carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions. There's a whole list of issues It goes on. Larger investors have benefited by the greater ability and willingness of smaller holders to raise cutting edge issues. fact is that larger holders tend to be a little bit more constrained by convention and, and what people think is acceptable right now. Uh, they're not as nimble. And so it's been very useful for the market for smaller uh, shareholders to play this role.
0: And if this rule were to go through, do you think large institutional investors could pick up the slack, assuming proposal numbers would then as a result decline?
1: So that's a good question. Certainly some of the large pension funds that are core members of the Council of Institutional Investors could become more active. They have done shareholder proposals historically and uh, are likely to continue and may expand that. The question I have is whether mainstream asset managers, which have been reluctant to propose shareholder resolutions for regulatory and maybe for antitrust reasons, whether they could be persuaded to do so more robustly uh, in order to fulfill their fiduciary duties. They may come under pressure from clients who are are institutional uh, asset owners, so we'll see about that. Overall though, the activity is likely to be less robust some voting issues will be suppressed. And by the way, there's some quirks in the SEC proposal, one of which is provision that would permit omission of some proposals that actually receive support between 25% and 50% of shares voted the previous year. I think we're likely to see less shareholder proposal activity overall. Another alternative might be more vote no campaigns on directors. So you can protest company policy by saying we're going to vote against a director or these directors, although inevitably that's less clear as a message than a shareholder proposal that, for example, requests better disclosure on carbon emissions. Uh, so, we'll, so we'll see.
0: Okay. And then what could the SEC be doing to fix proxy plumbing, as, as we mentioned before, an issue that has faded since being brought to light in tri Partners' proxy fight at Procter & Gamble back in 2017, so nearly three year, well three years ago?
1: I'm not sure it's faded, or if it has, it's because the SEC has decided to prioritize limiting shareholder rights rather than uh, fixing proxy plumbing. There actually is a lot of discussion going on behind the scenes right now. We may see some progress soon on, on a couple of discrete areas. The SEC has sparked some working groups on these issues. I'm involved in, in a couple of them. Where where we may see some progress on universal proxy, the SEC put out a good proposal in 2016, but then failed to uh, enact it into to policy. I think over that period of time, many of the opponents on the company management side have realized that actually this makes sense and is not really bad for company management. So there's more, there are more people who think universal proxy to, is a good idea. There are a couple of difficult issues that are being grappled with by folks behind the scenes, but I think with a pretty good intention to get something done here. So that's one area where we may see improvement. And then there's a group meeting on end-to-end vote confirmation, which has been sort of a goal uh, for investors for, for decades. That is routine end-to- confirmation i can see on a platform that x number of votes were cast for or against a proposal which is what i intended various intermediaries in our very complicated proxy system have been having pretty good discussions on 10 or 12 areas that actually are the sources of most of the problems uh, and trying to get to greed protocols, more clarity around responsibilities. I think the SEC is going to have to enter in at some point and lean on some parties to help solve the key problems, but there's there's some hope that we may uh, get some resolution there. There's some other areas of proxy plumbing that the progress is uh, slow, if at all. And we would like the SEC to look at technological solutions, including the potential use for Distributed ledger technology or blockchain technology, not focused directly on proxy voting, but above that level on actually how shares are held and permitting issuers, uh, companies to place their shares on a blockchain, creating an immutable, immutable record of transactions and ownership to replace the current system, which. For the institutional holders, shares are held in fungible, fungible bulk, uh, which creates a lot of problems not only with proxy voting, but with some uh, legal rights and litigation rights. But that's a long-term process and di- difficult to tackle. As there's a lot of regulatory and practical and technological issues involved with that.
0: And finally, ahead of your spring conference, what issues besides these SEC proposals are investors most concerned about, do you think?
1: Well, so... Outside of this whole arena, there's been a lot of focus on problems with uh, stock exchanges, uh, some some competition to lowest common denominator on dual-class stock but also stock exchanges using their gatekeeper or monopoly position to charge exorbitant amounts for uh, critical market data, issues around trading. So we're going to look at some of those issues at our conference. So that's one set of concerns. Within the corporate governance arena, I think some of the issues we've been seeing prevalent in the last few years are just continuing better environmental and social disclosure. On that, there's, I think, a range of differing views depending on the issue among investors about how we can get to better disclosure frameworks. Some of it has to do with what the SEC can do. Some of it has to do with uh, SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, and the Global Reporting Initiative, and various frameworks that may be able to move us to a better place through private sector action. More generally, oversight of company culture. How do boards get a handle on culture? How do they deal with issues I think we are going to see more questions on corporate culture, and then for tech companies in particular, uh, being pushed on responsible policies around privacy, around use of their platforms. Those are likely to be very big issues this year. Uh, we talked about a perfection standard. I don't think investors are holding management to account for a perfection standard when you have hundreds of thousands of employees. But people want comfort that a board is understanding corporate culture, understanding the vulnerabilities, certainly understanding also how culture may impact ability to recruit good employees. It's very competitive right now, uh, particularly for tech companies, and it's pretty clear that younger workers, is a lot of concern about these issues. So people want some understanding that the board has a handle on cultural issues, is able to tackle problems. It's also come up in the utility sphere, particularly with Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, and its bankruptcy some problems with safety culture at the company that have been long standing. not necessarily easy to answer. It's interesting because PG&E has included safety metrics in executive compensation, which a number of people want to see, but there's some evidence that it actually backfired there, led to suppression of, of problems with safety. And so it's a complicated set of issues, but um, I think there's a lot of dialogue going on and a lot of awareness of board members. Uh, in the United States, there are tough issues that need to be tackled.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Ken. OK, thanks, Karen. I really appreciate the opportunity. That's all for this episode of the Activist Insight podcast. If you like what you hear or want to read more, you can subscribe to Activist Insight monthly by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. For comments or questions about the podcast or if you want something discussed on a future episode, please email press at activistinsight.com please as well do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul, and thank you for listening.